allow me to first give thanks to Dean Garland and Assistant Dean Tucker and the Truett faculty for the opportunity to stand here today, as well as thanking my wife for her presence on today, and Pastor Atchison is here, and all of you for your continued support, encouragement, and prayers. This morning, let's go on the road. In the National Geographic Society's book, the 10 best of everything, the 10 best famous U.S. road trips are identified by Susan Maximum. Among them are the A1A scenic and historic coastal byway in Florida. Allow two hours to drive this byway, which is located between the Atlantic Ocean and the intercoastal waterway on a narrow barrier island. Along with breathtaking views. You'll see the Gulf Coast. You'll see various things. You'll see the flora and the fauna, the resorts, the Art Deco architecture. But then there are the Michigan peninsulas. See the iconic dunes, the shorelines, the waterfalls, the pines, and the famed cherry orchards. The road stretches from Sleeping Bear Dunes to Batoski to St. Ignace to Sault Ste. Marie to Monsignor. Yet this morning, I invite you to join me on taking another road trip filled with breathtaking views and iconic destinations. On this road trip, God spares no expense to enlist your witness for worship. In our passage for today, we find the author continuing to write to Theophilus in the second installment of his two-volume work known as Luke-Acts. Now that Luke has outlined the legitimacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he presses on to demonstrate the continuation of the ministry of Christ through the work of the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, set in the second temple period of Jerusalem prior to its destruction in 70 CE, we are escorted along the back roads of Judea to witness an encounter between Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And in the opening verses, we discover God initiates your call to service. Verse 26, Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. He was one of the chosen ones, one of the seven, with the responsibility of keeping the peace. By attending to the Hellenist widow's daily meals, a man full of the spirit and full of wisdom. With an expanded vocation from deacon to freelance evangelist, a new opportunity for service has now arisen as he encounters the special presence of the Lord and receives a divine directive, being told to get up and go towards the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, a 50-mile journey that trails off to the southwestern boundary through patches of desert. Philip responds immediately in obedience. He, he gets up 
He brushes the dust off his sandals and he heads due south in the heat of the day. And along the way, it occurs to him that he's heard a thing or two about this place. He's reminded of the old city Gaza, the desert Gaza, or the glory days of this city prior to it being demolished by the Hasmonean king Alexander Janaeus in 93 B.C. and being rebuilt by Gabinius in 56 B.C. As he moves along, he reminisces on how there are stories about how desolate, isolated, and lonely this road can be. Some may call it the wilderness. Is Philip starting his journey from Samaria, some distance from the road situated north of Jerusalem, perhaps Jerusalem itself, or maybe even Caesarea? We don't know. You see, Luke is not concerned here with geographical longitudes and latitudes where X marks the spot. Instead, he's concerned with the fact that God's divine intervention directs the footsteps of Philip, which becomes paramount. In the July 2010 issue of Marie Claire, Taylor Swift admits to being obnoxiously driven to succeed. This four-time Grammy Award winner at the time, six now, if I believe, including Album of the Year for Fearless, the best-selling record in any genre in 2009, claims that her motivation and her drive are the same as they were before she was famous. I love having a goal. Feeling like I'm on a mission, she says. I love trying to beat what I've done in the past. I think about my next step ten steps ahead. I'm always planning three award shows ahead. Taylor says that for her, planning is a productive way of stressing out about your life. Now, while an obsession with planning to the nth degree can perhaps be beneficial in achieving worldly success, Luke lets us know that the expansion of the gospel occurs primarily by God's initiation and not our own desires and determination. Devising a plan for life and ministry, it can be a useful tool to guide you along the way, but let us remember that God already has a plan and a purpose, and what he desires most from us is our willing obedience. You see, we must remain open to the leading of the Spirit, even into the realm of the unknown to remain faithful to the call. But... If God's call is primarily about his providence, does God really care about what takes place at my residence? God cares about your disposition in life. Now, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. As Philip travels along this remote and isolated road, to his surprise, in the distance, he sees a chariot. Now, at first glance, this stranger of an ebony hue seems to be doing just fine. After all, here is the chief financial officer of all the holdings of the Bank of Candace. He's a man of wealth, resources, and notoriety in his own country. 
but he's no longer in his own land. And beyond the boundaries of his Ethiopian residence, modern Nubia, he's considered a foreigner. The last of humankind, according to Homer in his Odyssey, as Ethiopia is considered the ends of the earth. You see, this Ethiopian, he is a foreigner whose religious status has been pigeonholed by a community that centers on temple life in Jerusalem. And now this Ethiopian official has just come back from a religious festival in Jerusalem and he's on his way back home as he is traveling along this solitary road. The truth be told, the road is an accurate depiction of his current condition. He's been wrestling with the four servant song of Isaiah all morning long as his ox-driven carriage moves slowly along the barren terrain. Now, while I'm inclined to agree with Richard Longenecker that the evidence seems to lean in favor of this eunuch being a Gentile, proselyte, or a proselyte of the gate, non-castrated official, Luke never provides a complete description of the religious status of this eunuch nor the extent of his participation in worship at Jerusalem. Perhaps the vagueness of description points to the fact that at this very moment, the eunuch has no place in a traditional religious system. He's a square peg trying to fit into a round hole. But I'm so glad that even when we struggle to classify him, God sends an itinerant evangelist to come see about him Verizon Wireless, a big red, rated number one by top 10 reviews, 2012 best cell phone providers, is known for its slogan, can you hear me now? While becoming the largest cell phone provider in the United States with well over 92 million customers, the acquisition of Altair Wireless propelled it ahead of the perennial powerhouse, AT&T. Yet, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile and the rest, they're all susceptible to what we call dead spots or black holes. These are places with absolutely no reception whatsoever. Now, whether it's due to no cell towers nearby or just the landscape not being phone friendly. But we serve a God on today who is omnipresent, that's everywhere at the same time. And no matter the location, the landscape, the geography, there are no dead spots in God's coverage and no limitations placed on his presence. For those of you graduating in May, some of us may find ourselves like Philip here, receiving a call to serve in a remote location. What if your call, your remote assignment, is an opportunity for the advancement of the gospel to the far ends of the earth? as you adhere to the leading of the Spirit guiding you to take the road less traveled. For others, the workload and pressures of papers, projects, and soon-to-be final exams may push you to the limit. But rest assured, your limit is never beyond the reach of God's deliverance. Maybe your past choices in life have regulated you to live in the margins of life, or maybe you've encountered barriers in your own religious community as a woman in ministry. Whatever your condition, Today, I stopped by to tell you to be encouraged because there's no situation or location too remote for God's presence. 
If God is willing to go to the ends of the earth to see about one Ethiopian eunuch, surely there are no boundaries beyond his benevolence. As we continue our journey through the text, we learn the interpretation of Scripture hinges on your relationship with Christ. Beginning with verse 32, now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Having been told to catch up with the chariot and join it, Philip breaks out into an all-out sprint. And as Philip gets in close proximity, he notices that the officer, the official, is sitting in his chariot reading from the prophet Isaiah aloud, a common practice in antiquity. Recognizing the man as an Ethiopian, perhaps Philip ponders the words of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Initially, Philip starts out by raising a question. He sees the eunuch reading the scripture, and he says, I know that you're reading the scriptures, but do you understand them? Now, perhaps the scroll of Isaiah arrested the attention of the eunuch due to its references of Ethiopia participating in the promises of God. Nevertheless, exhausted, exhausted from just mental deliberation and perhaps the desert heat, he admits to his inability to interpret the text without someone to guide him. And then he expands his boundary of private devotion and invites the stranger Philip into the chair to sit right beside him. He moves further, though, by taking a risk by expressing the object of his obsession and vexation. I, if I may ask, just who is this prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Now, in the original Hebrew text, Isaiah 53, verse 8, describes the servant as from oppression or coercion and judgment, he was taken off. But he was cut off from the land of the living, which accentuates the finality of the isolation and destruction of the servant. As a result, in first century Jewish circles, the scandal of the cross made it impossible to associate Jesus as being both the servant and the Messiah. However, the eunuch is reading from the Septuagint, a translation of the Hebrew text into Koine Greek adopted by the early Christian community. So in effect, the eunuch's question centers on one's hermeneutic of Christ. Now, the pounding of Philip's heart is no longer the result of exhaustion from physical exertion. It's the pressing conviction of the Holy Spirit to share his witness. So Philip, he opens his mouth and beginning with Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8, he proclaims the good news about Jesus. Philip communicates a suffering messianology in accordance to Jesus' own interpretation of Scripture for his own disciples in Luke 24, where Jesus is the suffering servant in Isaiah as well as the long-awaited Messiah. Philip points to the humiliation of Christ as being the springboard for the exaltation of Christ. And upon hearing about Jesus, 
Suddenly, the scriptures come alive to this eunuch as he begins to understand them. He begins to experience the feeling of a long-lost hope, a, a dream deferred, that if God can exalt Jesus in the midst of his humiliation, surely God can deliver me from a life of subservient existence and spiritual marginalization. On October 24th, 1998, NASA launched Deep Space One, or DS-1, with its mission being primarily a technology testing mission. During its testing of propulsion and navigation, at times the DS-1 would, it would get off course due to the various factors that influence spaceflight, such as gravitational pull and solar wind and the inability to account for them all at once in space. So whenever an event would occur that the DS-1 would get off course, a course correction was needed. In order to facilitate this course correction, NASA would first have to calculate the position of the DS-1 along with its course vector, the speed and direction of its flight, and then compare it to the path it was supposed to be on. Afterwards, a new course would have to be calculated to get the spacecraft back on course. Finally, the ship's attitude thrusters would aim the ship and then the main thruster would push it along the way. Now, while NASA's knowledge may be limited, we serve a God who doesn't have to calculate. Instead, he navigates a course correction by the Holy Spirit between a servant on the run from persecution and a eunuch earnestly seeking restitution. This morning, Jesus was the key that unlocked the door of understanding for this Ethiopian eunuch. And in this moment of divine synchronicity, the good news about Jesus is spread beyond Judea and Samaria as it's traveled along a trajectory aimed at the ends of the earth. And just like this union, we today must answer the question, who is Jesus Christ for ourselves? Some say he's John the Baptist. Others say he's Elijah. Still others say he's one of the prophets or nothing more than a carpenter's son. But today I hear Jesus reissuing the same inquiry he spoke to Peter and the other disciples over 2,000 years ago. But who do you say that I am? So why then do we need to have faith in Jesus Christ? Your faith in Christ opens the door to a spirit-filled life of worship. Picking up with verse 36 of the text, out of nowhere, this eunuch spots some water. Perhaps the Wadi El Hesse, northeast of Gaza. And he recounts with great zeal, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? You see, he has firsthand experience of the many stipulations that have hindered him in Jerusalem from becoming a fully-fledged proselyte. But now that he has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, what could possibly stand in his way? Even Philip recognized that this is a moment of divine intervention as they struck water in the middle of the wilderness. 
And despite flashbacks of a conversion experience going south with Simon the magician, Philip gives in to this foreigner's request. Philip commands the chariot to stop. And getting out of his chariot, like a kid at the candy store, this high-ranking official goes down into the water with Philip and is baptized. Coming up out of the water, he witnesses an Elijah-type moment that signifies for him that this stranger Philip is a messenger of God as the Spirit snatches Philip away. But, but he can't help but to notice there's an incomprehensible joy that is rising up within him. He's overwhelmed by a presence that he has never experienced before in his life. And it spills over into uncontrollable rejoicing. Getting back into his chariot, he's praising and worshiping God in response to this priceless free gift of salvation he has received. So you have to understand, he's no longer considered a foreigner, a second-class citizen, a person on the outside looking in, one who lives on the edge of life. He's moved from being the minister of finance to the queen to becoming a child of the king, an heir of the father and a co-heir with Christ. And now this newborn believer, he He's headed back to Ethiopia, but now he's empowered to tell others about a man named Jesus. Meanwhile, Philip continues his evangelistic tour some 55 miles or so up the coast, passing Jomni and Antipatris until he reaches Caesarea, a city named in honor of Augustus, Caesarea, the same place where Peter will convert a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and Paul will visit Philip. Some 20 years later, after becoming a family man with four prophetess daughters, bringing to mind the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy in Joel chapter 2. In his article posted on Christianity.com, Worship as Pastoral Care, Paul Anderson claims that when we recognize worship as divine initiation, and human response, then we will have the key to allow people to be freed from their personal moves. Baptism, praise, and proclamation. Are these not all elements of Christian worship? See, in the closing verses of this passage, God's divine initiation comes into direct contact with the witness of Philip and the faith of the eunuch, resulting in a breathtaking view of worship. At the point of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, this, this desert road, this wilderness, is transformed into a magnificent oasis of free-flowing joy for the eunuch, whereby the Holy Spirit displays that baptism into the family of God is available to all who will have faith and believe in the Son of God. This morning, the good news about Jesus is that the suffering servant has arisen from a borrowed tomb as the Messiah. Surely, God spares no expense to enlist our witness for his worship out of love. For God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And with faith in Jesus Christ, we too, like this eunuch, can be buried with Christ by baptism and raised to walk in newness of life.
This morning, when I think about Jesus and all that he has done for me, how he saved my soul and he set me free, my mind is made up this morning that, that while I travel on this road called life, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is seeking sand. All other ground is seeking sand.